0: title of my sermon today is Fundamentals of Parenting. Uh, I'd like to review the purpose of parenthood, but to do that by going through some of the fundamentals. And I've purposefully titled it Fundamentals of Parenting and not the Fundamentals of Parenting, because I, I am not going to presume that I've somehow figured all of them out. I think if you were to interview my children, they would guarantee you he has not figured everything out but uh as part of what's fascinating about the bible you know some of what is just is a bit of an aside but what is some of our most specific advice concerning marriage and how to conduct ourselves in marriage provided in the new testament who gave some of that the apostle paul who as best we can tell wasn't married There's some debates about that, whether he had a wife in the past, etc. It's important to recognize principles are principles. And whether it's me up here or anybody else up here, or if it were somehow a trained monkey. In case someone thinks it is currently a trained monkey, it's not. Thanks a lot. Why would you think that? But regardless of who are saying these principles, they're biblical principles. And these fundamentals of parenting can be found here in Scripture. If any place in the fact that who is the ultimate parent? It's God, the father. What is he doing on earth right now? If not parenting us, seeking to produce the results that every parent seeks to produce. So today I'd like to discuss fundamentals of parenting. And before we get into those fundamentals, I feel like there's two things I do need to say up front. Uh, one, it's, it can be kind of a triggering thing. Some time ago, a, uh, woman, some of you may not have heard of named Mrs. Hillary Clinton wrote a book titled, it takes a village. Uh, And it was a book talking about how, when it comes to rearing children, it's based on the phrase, it takes a village to raise a child that it takes a whole village to be able to do that. Well, many took proper umbrage at that because the spirit of some of those involved in the production of such books seems to be to downgrade the role of parents and so people were a little concerned about this book it takes a village because there's a concern is that what they're trying to impress this idea that oh yeah parents are really special but you know what everybody else is just as special but the reason i bring that up in this first point is i want to highlight that while it really, there should be a book, it takes parents. And it takes parents willing, willing to parent. It does help when the whole village is on board. It's not that that's inherently wrong as a principle. The most important thing that needs to be present, the sin qua non, to say something fancy and probably pronounce it wrong, the thing without which you don't really have what God intended is parents. Parents parenting children. But at the same time, if those parents have access to loving and supportive grandparents for the kids and aunts and uncles and cousins and a congregation, all of whom are invested in that outcome of healthy children, but who recognize the primacy that parents have in that regard it's incredibly helpful. And so while today we're going to focus on parenting, I do hope that all of us, whether we have children, our children are grown, uh, regardless of who we are, I hope all of us consider these principles and think about whatever we can do to help that. Because if there's a child in this congregation from age zero and one second uh, to, well, all of you are a child of God, so you know, all of you, but if there's a child in this congregation, we all play a role. In supporting parents in this regard and helping their children feel that church is not something separate from them. They're a part of this. They're they're an attendee of the living church of God, you know, and and to, to treat them as that and seek to try to interact with them, not in creepy way. Hello, little kid. You know, it's very you got to you got to talk to parents, you know, try to understand and work with them. But I hope all of us are invested. So I, while this is very focused on parenting, I do want to make sure that it's clear. All of us need to understand these things. Plus, we will be responsible. Dr. Oneil is very good about hammering home consistently. We're training for the future. All of us, every single breathing human in this room in the king, who's in part of the kingdom of God will be helping families of the future structure those families and serve in those families properly the way God intended. So all of us do need to understand these things. But the second thing I'd like to emphasize before we jump into it is we do have materials you should read and watch. I, I it mattered enough to me. I actually brought them. I didn't want to just refer to them. So we have successful parenting, God's way, by Doctor Jeff Fall. <clears throat> and if you like to see the fruit of that, you can look at Mrs. Rod McNair and, and decide. And if you think she's a horrible person, well, then you won't want to. You won't want to read this. Uh, but Doctor Fall, you know, is her father, and some of you know his children. It's it's a remarkable family. Honestly, people talk about life goals. Uh, the Falls family to me uh, is very much a, a life goal. And I, I wanted to make sure that what I was putting together was in, print, in line with what we've, already, what we've already printed. And I had this idea some, some time ago for this sermon. And as I was going through this again, I just wanted to go back in time and re-raise my kids. And, uh, and actually, may I, you think you know it all and you don't. This is a... I've, I've read materials outside of the church, and there's so much more in this. I, I'd be willing to burn all of those for the price of getting one of these. In fact, I should go through and highlight so many things that actually I feel like I fell short on, and then give a copy of that, I guess, to, to Isabel, uh, you know, for a wedding gift, and say, look, when things go wrong, I'm sorry, this is probably why. Here, I've highlighted I've highlighted the things. So, uh, anyway... It's, and It has a brand new cover, by the way. Use that as an excuse to get one, uh, Mr. Robinson picked this cover. looks like a young Liam Neeson uh, you know in his family. It looks great. in fact, if, if you get it, show the kids there 's one kid that 's clearly not happy in this picture. I want to ask I wish my kids would why do you think he 's unhappy let 's talk about that well because i 'm unhappy sometimes because anyway it 'd be fun. so get this book very good book, and then also i 'm actually going to take it out of the sleeve. I have no idea why. You can see the whole thing. Raising Good Kids in a Bad World, a video by Jonathan McNair. Some of you are too lazy to read. That's fine. We've got a video that you can watch, uh, which also... Covers these principles; these things work together so remarkably well. Uh, but this presentation—it's not like any other DVD we really have. It's not like the telecast. Uh, it's not—it's not a compilation. It's not just one of us on the set. It's Mr. Jonathan McNair just doing some. Frankly, it just feels very personal instruction. And these principles are fantastic, absolutely fantastic. And so I'm actually going to be referring to Dr. Fall's uh, booklet several times in today's sermon because. After a while, as I was kind of prepping for the sermon, the more I looked at his booklet, I thought, I think the congregation would be better served if I just read from the booklet for about 60 minutes and then sat back down. It really is very good, and I hope this will encourage you to take the time to go through them again. Those things said, let's go ahead and get started. I can't. I have them distinct. I won't tell you how many there are because I might run out of time and not get to all of them. But too bad for you. You'll be missing a fundamental aspect of parenting. Uh, I'll do my best. Let's, I'll be up front. I got seven. But I'll try, the, the last few go really quickly, so that won't be by accident if we get there. And they do overlap a bit. They do interact. Like most things in real life, few things are actually so distinct that they can truly be separated into compartments. So do keep that in mind. You might think of something, some aspect of something, and it actually, I've got that grouped in something else. It's part of why I didn't want to call this the fundamentals of parenting because that can really, your mileage may vary. The principles are the principles. Uh, But you'll find they do interact with each other. And again, I can't guarantee you that it's complete either. There may be elements here that we are not yet including. All right, the first one I want to highlight, and they kind of vary in size in terms of explanation, but this one will deserve a bit of time. The first fundamental of parenting. As parents, our primary purpose is our children's salvation and raising them to become sons and daughters of God. As parents, our primary purpose is our children's salvation and raising them to become sons and daughters of God. Now that can be heartbreaking because as you discover as parents, your children do have free will. You can't actually make the choice for them in this regard. But it doesn't change the fact that that still is our primary goal. Think about God working with us. What is his primary goal with us? Is to have each of us with him for all eternity. In glory and majesty and joy forever. And yet we know from reading scripture there will be those who choose not to. There will still be those who choose to go, for instance, to the lake of fire. I say by their choice, by their rejection of God. It'll be made plain to them what that rejection means, and yet that's still a rejection that they will actually uh, commit themselves to. And he's the perfect parent. So I know it's heartbreaking sometimes you know talking with someone where their child has 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 left the faith and so this isn't meant to add to to your heartbreak i know it it's hard to it would be hard to add i know to that heartbreak and your prayers for them surely continue there's no reason for those to stop and you hope something will turn around but it's important for us to recognize this really is the single most important thing nothing matters as much it is more important than their education uh, than their choice of a career than their certifications, than any degrees they might get, than any skills they might happen to develop for a, a future job. It's not that all those things don't matter. They do matter. In fact, we'll get to, to training children a little bit later. It's just that literally all of them take second place or, or less. None of them come close to comparing to our obligation to seek our children's salvation and to raise them to become sons and daughters of God. It's fundamental in God's mind. Turn to Malachi chapter 2. Malachi chapter 2. I was joking about a regular sized person's lectern, but I do feel a little exposed. I kind of wish I had a big giant lectern now to hide behind a little better Malachi chapter two. And God is going through so many things that he is upset with Judah about in this. And one of the things that he is really upset about is how they have dealt with their marriages, how they have forgotten, uh, for instance, the man, that their wife is their companion. Their wife is, is a friend uh, and, and, he, and he goes through these things and he makes a very important statement in Malachi chapter 2 and verse 15. Malachi 2 and verse 15, he says, But did he not make them one, speaking of man and woman, having a remnant of the spirit? And why one? He seeks godly offspring. Therefore, take heed to your spirit and let none deal treacherously with the wife of his youth. You know, this hints actually at a principle we'll talk about later. Hopefully, I'll I'll leave myself time that it's vital for us to focus on our marriage if we want to serve our children. Uh, Serving our children doesn't mean putting them above our marriage. Actually, we should focus on our marriage. And essentially, he ties that that I want godly offspring, therefore have a good relationship with your wife. Don't deal treacherously with her. But he himself says this is part of the reason that he chose to make them one is because he, God, longs for godly offspring to come out of these unions. That's part of his desire. It's part of the whole reason he actually created the family. You know, you think about that. When we have a child... It can sound like, uh, I don't know how to put it. It can sound, uh, like, like you're just sort of speaking with large words if we don't take the time to, to think about what they mean. That child is literally a future God being, potentially. That the moment they're born and they're all squirmy and let's just be honest, ugly, some newborn babies are just hideous, right? They're just, uh, I mean, of course, you think they're cute, but that's because your parents and chemicals and stuff, some of them just look like they, they need more bacon in the oven or something. But uh, anyway, these babies, which you fall in love with instantly, you've got these little squirming things and you just, and yeah, they're kind of gross in a lot of different ways and they're helpless and they're sort of useless, but still you love them anyway. But what are they? I mean, really, fundamentally, more than anything else, yes, it's a boy or it's a girl or it's it's bald or it's got all those things, but more than anything else, it is a potential child of God. That is the thing. That is what has just been born into the world, is potentially another eternal entity. Nothing else matters more than that. I mean, think about it. What if, how important is it to the royal family in England when another child is born? I mean, that's a big deal. I mean, the, the country devotes its resources to making sure that child is healthy, making sure that nothing is wrong, to make sure the environment is perfect for, say, the next king of England. And this, this makes that look like nothing. This is a future glorified child of God. And that fact supersedes everything else. It supersedes any other desires we might have for that child that he become the football star we always wanted to be or the... Uh, you know, math star, I guess. We always wanted to be, or whatever the case might be. It supersedes all of those things. That is most important. And it is on God's mind. Turn to Genesis chapter 18. Genesis 18. And here we have the circumstance where God, who in this case is actually the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ, he's the one who would eventually become Jesus Christ, that person in the God family, has actually come to earth, is walking here on earth to talk to Abraham, because He's things are looking like he's about to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, and he's going to talk to Abraham, and he's already talked about his promise to Abraham that Sarah was going to have a child. And he's, I say he's debating with himself. I don't know if that's exactly what he's doing, but he is, he is kind of talking with himself. We have this recorded here about whether he's going to share with Abraham what he is going to do. And he does decide he is going to tell Abraham. He is going to share his plan concerning Sodom and Gomorrah with Abraham. And what is part of his reasoning? We see in Genesis chapter 18 and verse 19, for I have known him. In order that he may command his children and his household after him, that they may keep the way of the eternal to do righteousness and justice, that the eternal may bring to Abraham what he has spoken to him. Notice he had Abraham's children and lineage in mind when he called him. He didn't just call Abraham because of Abraham. He called Abraham already thinking of the children Abraham would rear and the grandchildren that would come from that. They were on his mind, and he sought for Abraham to be one who would invest in them the way God needed him to. Now, it's easy to think, well, that's Abraham, right? I mean, father of the faithful. He's he's up there at the top of the spiritual family tree. I mean, we, we need him to have done that. Maybe that's a special case. Uh, it is not a special case. Let's turn to Psalm 78. Psalm 78. We're going to read six verses here at the beginning of Psalm 78. I I remember about when it actually hit me what was being said here, and maybe I, I, I think, you know, More simply than I should, my wife has sometimes said that I could really be entertained by watching water boil. It doesn't take long, it doesn't take much to to grab my attention. But, it just stunned me when I thought about the implications of this. So, in Psalm 78 and verse 1, we read that this is a contemplation of Asaph. It says here in verse one, give ear, O my people to my law, incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I'll open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings of old, which we have heard and known. And our fathers have told us we actually uh, do have these words put to music in one of our hymns. It says in verse four, we will not hide them from their children telling to the generation to come the praises of the eternal and his strength and his wonderful works which he uh, that he has done. Verse 5, For he established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers that they should make known to their children that the generation to come might know them, the children who would be born, that they may arise and declare them to their children. When I actually counted, you know, people here, it was clear God looks deep down the line when he's dealing with us and his plans for us. God is a multi-generational God. He doesn't just think of us. He thinks of the children that have yet to be born. And then he thinks of the children that they will have. That means like in my case, you know, I've I've got four sons, right? Right. They, they exist, as best I can tell. I poke them, they say, dad, stop that out, you know, stop that, I'm larger than you, and I poke them again and maybe regret it, you know, it gets tough. Regardless, they exist, right? They, they, they're alive, they have flesh, they have feelings. And so if you're going too deep that don't exist, that means God is thinking of their children who do not yet exist, and is thinking of the children of those children. Now, unless he already knows that Jesus Christ will intervene before those children's children show up, those are what's on God's mind. That's how God looks at family. He's not just training us in such a way that we're going to be in the kingdom. He's working with parents so they will so passionately instill his ways, his truth into their children that they will pass it on to the children that don't exist yet, who will in turn pass it on to the children that don't exist yet. That's the level of investment he wants parents to have in their children when it comes to God's ways and the life of God and the purpose of God. He is a multi-generational God. That is how he thinks, and that's how he expects us to think about everything. Every choice we make with our children. Now, I admit, sometimes you're thinking, is it the blue shirt or is it the red shirt? It's like, well, which will more profoundly influence my child's future in the kingdom of God? Blue is the color of the sky. Red, that's kind of demonic. I, you know, I don't know. Just kidding. Red's not demonic, by the way. Some of you have red jackets right now. It's just fine. I'm not trying to trivialize this. It's not like every minute decision. At the same time, those decisions happen in an atmosphere. So if we're making recommendations to our children of what to wear, there are times it's worth considering. Okay, well, what are we going to? Is it someplace? Is it is it Bible study? Should we dress up? It's not just a matter of, well, we don't want to get in trouble if we don't dress up. It's a matter of what am I teaching my child about the value of appearing in a place where God's word is going to be spoken and taught. Even dress matters and ties into those things. There are those that say, I don't see her in the Bible where it says wear a suit to church. No, but I do see in the Bible that God is here. And I see in the Bible that Jesus Christ says when someone showed up to the wedding supper inappropriately dressed, inappropriate for the occasion, they got removed. Because dress choices don't happen in a vacuum. When we're teaching our children things, those lessons don't happen in a vacuum. It's not just dress up for Bible study a little bit. We used to call Bible study clothes. We call them in my family. How do we dress? Is it Sabbath wear, Bible study? You know What is it? Well, I'm not saying we got all those things right, but we did try to communicate. You're not going to go and cut off some flip-flops. God's word is going to be opened in front of you in a formal setting. And there's a level of respect. And so we look to our culture. How do we communicate that in this culture? How do we communicate that level of respect? In the booklet, the new printing of the booklet, so the pages differ a little bit. These pages won't correspond to your pages if you have the older copy. Uh, But Dr. Fall put it this way. On page 45 of the newer printing, he says, Remember, every aspect of our parenting should revolve around the question, Will this increase or decrease the likelihood that my child will grow up in God's image? And he wasn't exaggerating. And some of us as parents, we know, right? We can think of some aspects of our parenting. Because I'm definitely, again, like I said, you can interview my kids. I'm certainly not standing up here as someone who's done everything right. And I know I'm in a room full of other parents that haven't done anything right. I mean, not anything. That'd be awful that haven't done everything right, everything right. And if you are a parent that's done everything right, please tell Mr. Lyons or something so he can pass me a note and I can sit down and we can get you up here to know how you did that. But if you reflect on your parenting, if there was some aspect in your life in terms of rearing your children and they're older and you really didn't think much about, you know, how that relates to the life of God, etc., you can think meditate on the fruits of that. Mr. Fall makes a fine point that we need to keep in mind and it's the first fundamental of parenting That I want to highlight. And again. Children do have free will. I don't want to leave that. God knows some of those he loves. Will actually end up being consigned to the lake of fire. However. Those who go into the lake of fire. Will not do so. Due to his lack of involvement. Or investment. Or his neglect. Anyone. Who ends up going into the lake of fire have to do so confessing that God is God and he has done all that he could that they would allow him to do. Because while God can do all that he truly needs to do, part of character is having free will. And God will not rob us of that. So our first fundamental is that we must make our absolute number one priority in our children's life, focus of our prayers, focus of our time, focus of our planning, is the salvation of our children and their lives as sons of God in eternity. All right, second fundamental that I want to discuss today is that as parents, our children must be a higher priority than our jobs, our careers, our worldly ambitions, or even our quote unquote personal fulfillment. Our joy in this life is second to their joy in eternity. As parents, our children must be a higher priority than our jobs, our careers, our worldly ambitions, or even our personal fulfillment. Jesus Christ tells us very simply in John chapter 10 and verse 11. John 10 and verse 11. He says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. That is, the shepherd recognizes, that's my role. These sheep depend on me, and my life is for their sake. He says he contrasts that with a hireling. With a hireling, he says later, well, you know, when it's convenient, right? As long as the paychecks are coming in, when it's convenient. But if a lion shows up or a wolf shows up, well, you know, you can't cash your paycheck if you've been eaten by a lion, right? I mean, you, just, you know, it's, not a, it's only so much you want to do for a paycheck. But Jesus Christ isn't a hireling. He's the shepherd. Well, who is your children's shepherd? And that is you, father or mother. You are their shepherd. And your job, my job as a parent, we are to give our life for our sheep. This is our flock. This is our flock. It's, it's one reason God, I, I believe, I don't want to put words in God's mouth, but I believe one of the reasons why God, when he's looking at, uh, when he's inspired the church to consider someone as an elder, that he's instructed them to consider, how do they take care of their families? How do they shepherd their families? That's your evidence of the kind of shepherd that that individual is. God intends for fathers and mothers to put their desires in perspective and recognize You have someone in your care that I plan on spending all eternity with. I need you to prioritize that the way I prioritize it. Then how did he prioritize it? Again, we have the good shepherd as an example. How important was it to focus on our spiritual future? He actually sacrificed his own son. It was that important. Jesus Christ gave up literally everything. None of us can ever give up as much as he did because none of us have actually been God in the realm of God like he was. He didn't just give up his life. He actually set aside an eternal existence to become like us solely for the sake of giving that up. That's the kind of sacrifice God is looking for. Yes, sometimes you move 3,000 miles for that. And sometimes you decide somebody else can teach the kids and you become a cubicle worker who gets excited at his first paycheck after that. You know, it's kind of nice non-teacher pay. So uh, anyway, it's, it's important that we have those priorities in life. Now, before I move on to the next point, I also want to make sure it's clear when I talk about making our, our certain desires and, and 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 ideas second place. Recognizing the, the importance of focusing on our children's needs and their future, it's also vital to recognize that doesn't mean putting our marriage second place. Quite the contrary, and you'll see this in the materials that we have. A husband must prioritize his wife first, and a wife must prioritize her husband. Now, it might think, well, is that, it's downgrading to kids. In fact, I've, I've known parents, I'm not saying they're in the church, but I've known parents to go, well, no, once I have those kids, they become even more than my husband or, or a man, even more than my wife. I've gotta, I gotta focus on those kids. And that's actually the opposite. That's not true. And what do we have as an example? Well, actually, we have, again, looking at Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ tells all of us, He says that you have to put me, Jesus says, before wife, Husband, father, mother, children. Jesus says, I come first. Now, is that because he's just full of himself? It's like, I just want you serving me, me, me. I'm all, I'm all that matters. No, actually, if we do put him first, then we become a better husband for our wife or a better wife for our husband. We become a better father or mother for our children. We become frankly, a better son or daughter for our parents It's interesting and contradictory in that way. I remember one of the reasons I'll just tell on my wife why she picked me, I could not tell you. But I know one of the reasons I picked her, and it was because I felt confident that she was someone who would put God before me. Because I knew the last thing I needed was a woman in my life that would idolize me. How healthy do you think it is to be placed on a pedestal and idolized? It's not. I needed believe me, she was going to need the patience that God Could give. She was gonna need a whole lot of things, you know, that God would give. I needed her to be able to put God before me. And if anything, it's self-interest for that. Same thing here. When a husband and wife put their marriage as the most important thing, they create an environment for children that has stability and predictability. And they see modeled the kind of love that we want to teach them to be able to express one day. If they see a uh, mother and father, husband and wife that don't put each other first, then they see not that. If anything, it teaches the child, you know, who's the center of the universe? You are, Billy. hope oh, there's no, I'm not picking on a Billy. You know, you're the center of the universe. And how healthy is it for a child to conclude? I'm the center of the universe. This is life is good, right? Last thing you want your children thinking is they are the center of the universe. Because they're not, right? God is the eternal center of the universe and no child needs to be in a place where they think that's them instead. And putting our spouses first helps to make sure that's the case. All right. So that was the second fundamental I want to discuss. The third one I want to discuss is that parents must provide for and protect their children. Parents must provide for and protect their children. As parents, we are the first line of our children's defense against a world that, I will be honest, is seeking to destroy them. used to be you'd say things like that, and you'd think that was maybe a little bit of hyperbole, even though you knew spiritually it was true, because this is the devil's world, and yes, he would love to destroy every single one of your children. Maybe give them financial success, would love to do that, if he can couple that to destroying their spiritual potential. And so it would feel like hyperbole, because but nowadays, less and less, it doesn't feel like hyperbole. When you see people essentially protesting, I want the right to destroy a child's life. I want the right to destroy a child's life. Because that is what's happening. We are their first line of defense. So we have an obligation to provide for them and to protect them. I don't want to focus so much on provide because I kind of hope that's a little bit obvious. Uh, we're told, for instance in 1 Timothy in chapter 5 we'll just read that quickly 1 Timothy in chapter 5 what god thinks of those who don't provide for their families in 1 Timothy chapter 5 and verse 8 now he's not talking about those who don't have the ability to do so he's speaking of those who can but don't he says in 1 Timothy 5 and verse 8 but if anyone does not provide for his own and especially for those of his own household he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. That's a serious statement to make is worse than an unbeliever. Now, and it's easy to think. look, I make good money and I put stuff on the plate. Well, how are you providing for your children in terms of their learning emotional control? Because a father who provides only money, but isn't there during the times when their children need guidance and correction is not providing for them is not providing for them. So there's, it's a large word, and it ties into other things, to be sure. But I'd actually rather focus on the other one just a little bit, and that is protection, because our children do need protection today in a way that, frankly, they just didn't need before in the past. And, you know, it's interesting. I, for me, turn to Exodus 22. This might seem a little bit backwards, but I hope not. How it? and, and uh, this part comes actually from a sermon I've, I've put together, I've, I don't think I've given here, but about fatherhood specifically. Because fathers do take the lead role in protecting their children. I hope it doesn't offend anybody. Unless you're a father not protecting your children, then I hope it offends you and you get over that and start doing it. Uh, the burden on protecting our children should not rest squarely on the shoulders of our wives. They need us as fathers to do that job. We are specially suited to doing that job. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not trying to fight mama bear culture. I get that, you know. Don't come between a mom and her cubs. I am not disagreeing with that. At the same time, if that's all the cubs have, then we are failing God as fathers. How do we know? Well, it's interesting because when God looks at a particular class of people that need extra protection... He teaches us something. In Exodus chapter 22, starting in verse 21, God speaks of various vulnerable members of the population in Israel. Exodus 22, verse 21. He says, You shall neither mistreat a stranger nor oppress him, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. You shall not afflict any widow or fatherless child. The widow has no husband and the fatherless child has no father. Why is he pronouncing curses, essentially, commanding those not to afflict them? Because they are particularly vulnerable to being attacked and being manipulated and being taken advantage of. It says in verse 23, if you afflict them in any way and they cry at all to me, I will surely hear their cry and my wrath will become hot and I will kill you with the sword. Your wives shall be widows and your children fatherless. God takes it from, in fact, uh, turn to one more, Deuteronomy 27. Deuteronomy 27, it's just one statement, but to me, the presence of the word curse coming from God's mind always gets my attention. Deuteronomy 27 and verse 19. Moses commands the people inspired by God in verse 19 to say, Cursed is the one who perverts the justice due the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow. And all the people shall say, Amen. And if fathers are not actually protecting their children actively, then they are functionally fatherless in this very regard. The irony being it's the father who is actually causing the issues now again I'm not trying to let mothers off the hook uh, it's it's a challenge uh, I some of you've seen the the uh, Daily Wire documentary what is a woman they offered it free on Twitter recently it's 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 hard to stomach parts of it but it actually is very uh, illuminating because I have to uh, preach I'm not saying I agree with everything Matt Walsh says he's very Catholic uh, but I do have to say that it was brilliant to simply sit down with these experts and let them talk because nothing actually helps condemn them more than the words they themselves say. Uh, and in this particular case, one of the men he talked to was in Canada who is under arrest because he would not refer, I think it's to his daughter, by the pronouns she proclaims that she prefers. His ex-wife is actually going through, making sure, you know, they're, she's on hormones, uh, who knows, set up for surgery, and he is under arrest Cannot leave. Uh, And at the time, actually his trial should be around now. It had been postponed and postponed. The government of Canada was literally arresting him because he refused to participate in his daughter's delusion. It was the last thing he was capable of doing on that train with everybody against him was at least provide her one more witness. The last witness perhaps in her life that you are a girl and you are my daughter. And I love you too much to lie about that to the point that I'm willing to go to jail. It's a remarkable thing that he's doing. And it's. I pray none of us are ever in a circumstance like that. And yet we're in a world where that is growing. But I don't mean to make it over dramatic. There are so many things for which our children need to be protected. Uh, consider your daughter's social media life. How many of us are invested in that? How many of us have access to the pictures that she's seeing and the communications that she has? And I I know that can vary by age, uh, but they've literally highlighted recently. The Wall Street Journal did an expose. I can't believe it's not larger news. This this should be gigantic news that there are active pedophile rings. On The Wall Wall Street Journal reported on on Instagram. Uh, The CEO of Instagram is doing nothing, functionally nothing, to stop it. Uh, and it's this is this is not some conspiracy theory someplace. This is literally the Wall Street Journal about as mainstream as you can get in this kind of uh of uh, reporting. How many of us are, have the courage to do the embarrassing thing to say, look, I, I, yes, I trust you, but it's also my obligation to guard your life at this stage in your life. And so I, I do want access. I do want to be able to to see what you share. I don't want you to build a life that I don't have access to. I love you too much for that. And as time grows and responsibility can be released, it should be a gradual thing. You don't necessarily want to coddle someone until they're 18, then dump them out with full responsibility. There's some wisdom it takes. But yet, how many people, their young, young, young children have access unburdened to social media when, I know this sounds odd to say, and I say it partially as a math geek, but partially just because I read and I understand, we, you, most likely, most people don't fathom how powerful the algorithms are driving these things. Mr. Weston's tried to report on it. There is millions to, to actually billions of dollars invested in how to manipulate your children's minds through their social media apps and frankly manipulate some of yours too. Twitter probably tweaks me here and there. We have a responsibility to be involved. Then there are people seeking to prey on our children for profit. We need to be involved. Do we have the courage to have those awkward conversations with our kids? Why should I take courage to talk to a child at the same time? If we ever had talked about the birds and the bees, we know it actually takes some courage, right? Uh, So it does take courage. Fathers, mothers, are we protecting our children from pornography? Do you have any idea how much money is spent to try to expose your children to pornography? And do you have any idea how easy it is for them to be exposed? I remember Mr. Weston giving a a, a talk at a... Charlotte family weekend. And he was talking about his sympathy with young men. He said it wasn't even like in his day where it's a magazine here or there or photos. It's often just a click away and what strength of character it takes to not click on that. That's why we have parents. That's why God put them there to participate. And admittedly, we can't completely hold back the entire world from them uh, they've got to eventually learn to live in it. But in addition to seeking to protect them from it, putting whatever safeguards, getting counsel, whatever safeguards might be, do we also invest as part of protecting them, creating the kind of environment that if they ever do find themselves in that world, that they actually feel comfortable coming to us and asking for help? Or would they be afraid? They already would feel ashamed. Would they fear coming to us? It's on us. It's, it's too easy to think, you know, it's just with all these teachers and all these apps and all of this, I, I there's only so much I can do. Now, I'm not trying to be dismal about it. And we're all going to make our mistakes, to be sure. But brethren, we will, I know one thing that we will not be able to do. And that is appear before Jesus Christ and then say... Well, you don't understand my son, uh, you know, my daughter, uh, you know, my son, they had all this, their teachers, it's just their teachers at their schools were constantly saying these things. It was a part of the background all around them. There's so much because Jesus would rightly be able to respond. That's why I gave your son you. That's why you were there. That's the role you were to fulfill, to be the living, breathing firewall Between them and that, so parents, we fundamentally, we have to see. We won't do it perfectly. Our children are going to enter adulthood through much tribulation. That's just that's just the way it is. But we can do we we can do more than nothing. We we can do many things. All right, the fourth one. And I probably should have just said that there's only four because this is actually the largest one we could spend time on. Some of these verses I may not turn to. I might just read for the sake of time because I knew this was a large one. But the fourth fundamental I wanted to discuss today was that parents must teach and train their children. I know it seems, well, duh, you know, just sit down. We already know that. I know. That's why they're called fundamentals, right? You know, and it's good to go over fundamentals. Parents must teach and train their children. Now, please understand when I say this, I'm not necessarily saying in the homeschool sense. I'm not saying it's a requirement somehow that we're supposed to homeschool. I'm absolutely not saying that. What I am saying though is that God holds us responsible for their education and their training. He's not holding their public school teachers responsible or their private school teachers responsible. Frankly, He's not really, in a sense, holding the sermonette speaker responsible or the sermon speaker responsible. Now, yes, if the sermon speaker does say dumb things and and actually uh, messes up a child, God is going to hold him accountable. But not in the same way he's going to hold us as parents accountable if we did nothing in that circumstance. That is on us. That is our responsibility, ultimately. And the Bible makes that clear. Actually... It's important to recognize what is the natural state of children. I kind of like this statement in Deuteronomy chapter 1. Deuteronomy chapter 1. And Moses is speaking to those. This is before they go into the promised land. And he's reviewing their history. And he describes their children in a particular way. And by now, they've got lots you know, they've been 40 years, they've been breeding and families have been growing. And he says in Deuteronomy one in verse 39, he says, moreover, your little ones and your children who you say will be victims who today have no knowledge of good and evil. They shall go in there to them. I will give it and they shall possess it. He wasn't saying that they were good people going in. They just hadn't yet corrupted themselves. They had no knowledge of good and evil. It reminds me of the statement in Jonah where he talks about people who don't even know their right hand from their left. They're like 120,000 people there in Nineveh. Now some think it, it could be spiritual he was talking about. They're spiritually ignorant. Others have said no. He was clearly talking about the children that Jonah should have mercy on at least. children, Because children don't know their right hand from their left. You ask, you know, uh, an infant hey, raise your right hand, and they stick their foot in their mouth, right? They don't know, right? Children are born remarkably, astonishingly stupid, right? Really, really stupid. They don't know anything. But keep in mind, what is our goal? What are we trying to do? We're a Christian, and we're trying to reproduce a Christian life in this person. We're trying to grow a Christian life. Trying to, to, If we're a father and I have a son, then I'm trying to create for whatever extent I can, with God's help, another future father and son. And you got to go from them being born, having to wear diapers, and literally have food carried into their mouths until one day they actually, well, one, don't have to wear diapers, but also would be choosing to put food in another child's mouth. We've got to get them from nothing to functional. And that's our job as parents. We must Teach and train our children. Now, what I wanted to use in this was that parents must discipline their children. Now, regrettably, the word discipline has a lot of baggage. In fact, Dr. Fall actually mentions this in the booklet. Uh, In the booklet on page 16, Dr. Fall writes, uh, Most people often think of discipline as punishment. But punishment is only one aspect of discipline. Discipline is, and he quotes from Merriam-Webster, training that corrects, molds, or perfects the mental faculties or moral character. He continues, Christ's early followers who were being trained in the way of life were called disciples. And he highlights disciples discipline, they have the same origin. It says Christ taught the disciples, he encouraged them, and sometimes corrected them. His goal was to train disciples who could live and teach the Christian discipline, the way of life. In other words, to reproduce himself in them. And disciplining them was the means of doing that. Parents train, or could be said, discipline their children with encouragement praise and rewards and also with correction and penalties children are designed to learn it's interesting we uh my my nephew and his wife uh wilson and caitlin brown are, are staying with us uh, here the weekend and their little baby william is so cute and and my youngest son david was playing with him on the couch and we had the funny idea because he just loved the arm of the couch and it was, we thought it'd be kind of fun to kind of uh uh, kinda, like, have him kinda go over the edge a bit. Not dangerously, he's not gonna endanger a child, don't, don't call the police on David. But you know, they're kinda like, woo, you know, cause it's fun, you do things with kids, and it's fun, and, and it's safe, cause you know, you've, there's no way they're gonna fall. But, it was kinda noted, well, we don't want him to think, Man, crawling over the arm of this couch head first is really fun, you know? This is great. Because next thing you know, you're not there and he's doing it, you know? Uh, you're not there holding on to his legs and he's upside down figuring, oh, how did that happen? So why? Because they learn. They're designed to learn. In fact, David was also walking him around, you know, kind of holding his hands. And and we were talking about, like, you realize his neurons, as that's happening, in a small way, that's just one more contribution to his learning to walk. It's a small contribution, step by step, but it's exactly what it is. So I told Dave, when he's older and he's walking, you should say, you know, I did part of that. You know, you owe me. You owe me for that. You know, young William, I, you know, pay up. So when I talk about this training and teaching, uh, I our discipline, I see it as three separate things. They're, they're related, but I, you can at least say three components. Uh, one of them is instruction. Another is Encouragement. And another is correction. Training and teaching children involves instruction, encouragement, and correction. I'll talk about them a little bit out of order. Let's talk about instruction first. And the Bible makes that plain in so many places. Uh, If you look, for instance, in Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 4. Ephesians 6 and verse 4. Ephesians six and verse four, we read and you fathers do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. The way of God must be passed on. That is done through instruction. That is done through teaching. They have to be taught these things. We cannot expect them to sit in services and soak it up. It's not sufficient. It's not sufficient. In fact, Dr. Fall." covers this, and he talks about Deuteronomy 6, which is a natural verse to bring up in this context. Let me go ahead and just read. This is from pages 25 through 26 of Dr. Fall's booklet. He says, Scripture makes it clear that children can be taught God's way of life most effectively in the home, informally and constantly. Doesn't mean you don't have formal moments. But understand what he's about to say. He quotes here from Deuteronomy. And these words which I command you today shall be in your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. Shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. Deuteronomy 6, verses 6 through 7. Then he continues. Parents should constantly point out to their children the benefits of God's way of life. Sitting on the couch... Watching television, driving down the street, reading the paper, and at every opportunity when God's way of life can be contrasted with the suffering that this world's lifestyle brings. He says, there's no shortage of examples in this sick world. The question is, will parents put in the effort? Granted, it takes considerable time and a consistent focus on this meaningful goal, but it has huge payoffs. Relying on church services by themselves will not accomplish the task. Parents must reinforce lessons learned in church wherever possible with both a mother's nurturing love and gentle teaching and a father's consistent guidance and support. So instruction is a part definitely of training and teaching our child. And let me cover correction next uh, for, for a bit of cause and I'll, I'll read a few verses here. I just want to turn to one, but let me let me read uh, one for instance. Uh, the Bible says, "Correct your son, and he will give you rest. Yes, he will be a delight to your soul," as from Proverbs twenty-nine and verse seventeen. But let's turn to Proverbs twenty-five. Proverbs twenty-five. We're talking about correction now. That is when a mistake has been made, someone's done something wrong. Proverbs 25 and verse 28. In Proverbs 25, in the last verse of the chapter, Proverbs 25 and verse 28, We're warned, whoever has no rule over his spirit is like a city broken down without walls. A city broken down and without walls is vulnerable to its enemies. And anyone who has no rule over his spirit is vulnerable to his enemies. In this particular case, that enemy is Satan, the devil, but certainly could be others. But the point I want to make is, building those walls absolutely must begin early. Building the walls of the city, self-control has to begin at the earliest stages. Honestly, the devil is not waiting. And yet it's not easy, but the rewards are immense. And not just for you in terms of the peace Proverbs 29 talks about, also, the rewards for them. Sometimes it's tempting to think, well, you know, he's only one or he's only two. You know, how much self-control uh, can he learn? My wife actually corrected me on that. See, I could be corrected as well. Uh, I remember when our, well, I say when ours, mainly Jonathan, you know, with firstborns, you get to make all the mistakes on them. That's why they get extra, you know, that double portion. So I remember when our first was, was real little and, she, you know, she would, she was baking in the kitchen, she'd have them up there on the counter, you know, they knew to sit, they wouldn't mess around, and, and they enjoyed being up there. And so, if they would grab something they shouldn't or whatever and she had told them, well, don't do that. But if they would do it again, they'd get a little, a little spank on the hand. Uh, we are corporate punishment. And I wasn't like jumping up in the air and like, BOOM! Ha ha! You know, and the hands all swollen, you know, and broken. Uh, but no, but it, it did sting. Proverbs 20 and verse 30 says that blows that hurt cleanse the heart. Uh, Punishment has to be negative, whether it's a corporal punishment or any other kind of punishment. You know, parents that send their kids to the room these days, that's the place they wanted to be in the first place. Right. You know, it's not punishment then. So punishment has to be negative. And so she would, you know, kind of swat the little hand. And I remember in my wisdom, you know, at the beginning, like, oh, baby, you know, he's only, he he doesn't know. Is he really going to associate what you said with with the hand swat and blah, 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 blah. I was so intellectual about it all. And she said, you know, dogs figure it out. (laughs) And I was like. Yes, dear, you're right. You know, it's a, you know you're just right. Yes. He's like, yeah, you know, he may not put the words together. He might not say, oh, I have a syllogism that proves that indeed, you know, I, I do not like the spanking of the hand. I shall obey the mother. But their brain figures it out, right? It becomes a part of their character in that someone in authority who loves them has said, don't do this. And they better not do it. Right. That's important. In fact, uh, again, I'll read another proverb, not turn there for the sake of time. It says, uh, chasten your son while there is hope. And do not set your heart on his destruction. It's from Proverbs 19 and verse 18. Now, what parent sets his heart on his child's destruction? Generally, no healthy parent. But God is saying, if you don't chasten your son during the time when there's hope to actually form that character. You have set your heart on his destruction. You know, if you decide, well, you know what, I'm not going to get serious about expecting my child to control himself until he's about two. That's literally 10% of their life from zero to 20. When do you think the time of hope is? It's not 20. Those young parents who work hard, we just, you know, we're praying for you. We sympathize for you. We know it's not easy. We know it's very difficult. But... I guarantee you, those young parents investing on teaching their children uh, to actually sit quietly for a two-hour service, which for some children feels like being poked in the eyeball with knives, right? You know, learning, training your children to do that, I guarantee you, is one of the finest investments you will ever do for your children. And it is possible. It is possible. Without drugs, you know, without a, uh, you know, it's uh, maybe a cattle. No, I'm not a cattle prod. Never mind. That, that sounds. People are not going to think. These days, you can't guarantee people will know that you're you're just joking. Uh, all right, moving on to encouragement, because I I do had three other points after this, and my clock is ticking. Encouragement. Oh, sorry. Let me. Oh, I can't help it. Doctor Fall is just so good. I have to read this one quote because I. Let me just say, we're not anti-corporal punishment in the church. We don't tell you how to, how to punish your children. Uh, Proverbs 20 verse 30, it, while it it says blows that hurt, it's meant to mean punishment that is uncomfortable, punishment that actually is negative. That someone, your goal as a parent is to provide your child artificial consequences to teach them a lesson that will help them avoid the real life consequences later, which frankly are always worse. Uh, now there are philosophies out there that say, "Oh man, you know, spanking is ineffective. Spanking is it's just it's just wrong. Uh, it's child abuse." Well, don't get me wrong. Yes, some people do abuse their children, and they should not. It's it's immoral, and God hates that, and will hold people accountable for that. But is all corporal punishment child abuse? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. That is a lie from the mouth of the devil again. Oh, and I saw this study that says that. Well, you know what? I can give you studies that say it's not. That's what people do. They duel with studies. And when you tend to look at it, most of those researchers tend to be pre-biased before the study even comes out. How do we know it's not an evil or a negative to use appropriate, loving, corporal punishment? Because God says it's okay. And if we're not a people that takes God's advice, advice above the philosophers of the world, then who are we? We're not a part of the church of God. We're a part of something else. However, On the flip side, if that's all we have, if that's the only tool in our arsenal to correct our children is corporal punishment, we will fail. Uh, And and Dr. Fall gives such a great example. This is why I couldn't pass it up. All right, so Dr. Fall on page 19, I believe it's page 19 of the booklet, says uh, once. And I had to ask Mrs. Dana McNair if she knows who this is. Uh, once one of our sons ran outside slamming the door behind, rattling the windows with the force of the slamming door. My wife had previously pointed out why slamming the door was not acceptable in our home. So he knew better, but it's simply forgotten, right? I mean, how many of us are kids? How many of us were kids who just forgot stuff, you know, all the time? I'm not, I don't mean it wasn't forgotten. But the quotes are there for a reason. So he continues. When children are quickly disciplined in spite of the excuse, but I forgot, it's amazing how quickly their memory is sharpened. He says, in this particular, here's the the, the creativity. He says, in this particular situation, my wife simply had our son open and close the door quietly 25 times. It really seemed to drive home the point and his memory was no longer an issue after that. So, yes, if that's the only tool you have, you know, is corporal punishment, you need to grow creativity, right? Uh, there are some kids that frankly will look back at you when you're done with a spank and say, is that really the best you got? You know, uh, that's just that's not going to be the thing that works in all those cases. So we have to be creative. But remember, what's our goal to correct them with some artificial punishment? Sometimes there's a real life punishment uh, consequence you can allow to happen because it's not dangerous. But like if a child consistently wants to run into the street, you don't go, well, I'm going to wait until he gets, you know, three or four to get serious about that. No, that's the time to provide an artificial consequence that lets them know you will not do that. And I will not abide that because the real life consequence can mean not having a child anymore. So that is a part of that, and then lastly, I should have said. So the four, the four fundamentals of parenting uh, is encouragement, encouragement, and I mentioned this last because there was, if you go back a generation or two ago, uh, there was a philosophy it seemed, and I've I've I've, uh, I've I've read it statements here and there. Thankfully, not a lot of people think this way anymore. They go on the other extreme, but there was a philosophy that said, "Oh, you don't want to praise your kids." uh you know they they it just uh it, it inflates their egos it uh you know it builds up it makes their self esteem grow up to their head doesn't fit in the room anymore um well then the world jumped on the other side of that which is oh do nothing but praise your children oh look you're breathing good job johnny you know or whatever here's a star and here's a piece of candy no there is a comfortable in between but that comfortable in between must include praising your children if your child does something right and good and you fail to acknowledge it and tell them that was, I'm. you did that so well. How much time did you put into learning how to do that? If we don't praise our children, not only are we failing them by not positively reinforcing the thing we want them to do more of, but we're not acting like our father or Jesus Christ. When Jesus Christ submitted to John and was baptized, when John highlighted, man, you're, you're greater than I am. I should, be, I should be baptized by you. This is the son of God who submitted to a sinful human being to be baptized. That was, that was, a, that was a humbling. It was a humble choice. God didn't look on in silence and say, well, you know, this, this will really help his ministry. He verbalized that he was happy with his son. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased He has done good, and I love him as his dad. Our children need to hear those things, and no praise tends to equal the weight of the praise of a parent when our child has done well until they get married, and then sometimes husband and wife praise definitely comes in at a higher scale. But that praise is vital. What do all of us long to hear from Jesus Christ? We don't long to just be resurrected and just have him look at us and just kind of smile. I don't know about you, but I long for the words. Well done, good and faithful servant. Praise is a part of parenting. We should not deny it to our children. It is a part of disciplining them and training them. All right. These five, I'm just going to have to go through very quickly. i uh, sorry. Five, five, three, just three. Uh, number five, the fifth one. Deeply connected with the previous point, a fundamental of parenting is consistency. Consistency is fundamental to parenting. And again, for the sake of time, I'm going to go pretty quickly. I may not turn to some verses, but I at least will give them to you. It's easy for us to undercut ourselves in this regard as parents, often because we don't want to discipline. Or we feel bad. I found personally, when I felt bad disciplining my child for some rule they broke, it's often because I didn't feel confident in the rule when I gave it. Which means I probably shouldn't have given the rule in the first place. But if I've given it, and the child has chosen to do the opposite, then there needs to be, they need to see cause and effect. Uh, how many of us as parents have undercut ourselves saying, come here, and we allow our child to choose not to come here? Well then would you really mean come here or we go to the next level well like we escalate things okay defcon 2 uh okay i'm going to count to 3 now some of you are thinking oh don't don't make fun of that cuz i do that don't make fun of that and by the way if you if you do it i don't know i don't know you i don't know that you do that but it's terrible don't do that so we say okay I, i'm serious 1 2 <laughs> and i am not kidding i literally did see this in the mall one day Two and a half. Three. Well, look, even if they obey at three, what have we taught them? We haven't been consistent. I, I said I wanted to come here. I haven't acted like I really want him to come here. I've acted like I only want him to come here if I'm willing to go all the way to three. Right? That inconsistency is learned. They're literally designed to learn from these things. But uh, secondly, in terms of an inconsistency... Is it just seems like I I don't that that I I I I want to be respected as the authority in their life and in that way I'm picturing God and yet I've taught that well if I'm inconsistent, God must be inconsistent too. That when he says things, he doesn't necessarily mean them. Techniques like that Oh, sorry, also, and I don't I don't think this guy did this. I think when he got to three, his daughter ran, because she knew three was serious. She, she knew she didn't have to respond to his commands, but she knew she had to respond to the number three. Uh, however, what other parents, and Dr. Fall talks about this, actually at three of their child, they just go and grab their child and bring them. And then the child has learned, really, I don't have to do what you say at all. How does that turn, what does that turn into as they grow up? What does that, what does that mean in life? Consistency is vital. God is described by James in James chapter 1 and verse 17 by saying every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. And of course, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today and forever, as it says in Hebrews chapter 13 and verse eight. You know, it's fascinating to me. If you were to go to Genesis 17 and look at God's command to Abraham, he says, walk before me and be blameless. And then you go thousands of years in the future and see that same entity, but now the incarnated Jesus Christ, who had been the word and said those things to Abraham. And what does he say in Matthew five? You shall be perfect. Like your father in heaven is perfect. Be complete, be blameless. He's consistent. And we have to be consistent as well. Again, deferring to Dr. Fall, he says in the booklet, Consistency with a toddler providing rules and guidelines for conduct and punishment for disobedience leads to consistency as a teen, which leads to consistency as an adult, which can lead to consistency as a future son of God. Here first it is the process of learning cause and effect. Okay, the last two points I'll have to summarize very quickly. And it, and I hope you'll meditate on them because I, they are important and I can't. if I'm going to talk about fundamentals. I can't afford to leave these out. Uh, the sixth one is that parental love must be unconditional. Parental love must be unconditional. Now, that said, that doesn't mean accepting everything. That doesn't mean being OK with sin. It's not. We've already talked about correction. We've talked about discipline. And again, God is the model of that. In 1 John chapter 4, for instance, we read, In this the love of God was manifested toward us, that God has sent his only begotten son into the world, that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. That's 1 John 4 verses 9 and 10. God doesn't love us because we're, Good and amazing and wonderful and sinless. It says plainly, God demonstrated his own love toward us and that while we were sinners, Christ still died for us. When was the, if you, the pinnacle of God's expression of love for us? When we were dirty sinners, not even repentant. That's uh, Romans chapter 5 and verse 8. You know, we want to be as parents, the people that our children will feel comfortable going to when they're starting to get older. And they're making choices that even they feel ashamed of. If they don't know that we will love them regardless of that choice. It's hard to go. It takes courage. There's nothing a child wants to do that would cause them to think my father or mother may not love me anymore. But if they know that that love will be there, even if it means there's difficult consequences to follow, but if they know that that love is always there, if they know that we love them not because they're good, whether good or bad, we love them all the time. If they know that it's easier to come to us when they feel ashamed, when God is working with them in such a way that they feel the, the results of that consequence, the distance that's grown between them and God. And it's easier for them to give us the opportunity to help them bridge that distance again. As parents, part of our job is picturing the love of God for them. And tying in with the last point, a parent that doesn't praise their child starts to see a God that doesn't have any praise for them, that doesn't have a good word to say about them, a God that's only looking out to catch them when they're wrong. And if they don't see unconditional love in us, how are they ever going to imagine it for the one we're meant to picture? And then finally, the last fundamental that I want to leave with you is that for better or worse, our children will never be able to escape our example. And it's up to us to try to hedge the odds on better. Instead of worse, they will never be able to escape our example. Now, that said, it doesn't mean they can't transcend our example. Thankfully, before God, they can. Otherwise, humanity would be nothing. All of us, even in the church, it would just be a downward spiral. If our parents' example was the cap that we could never exceed, you know, entropy would kill us and and we would just, it would just, it wouldn't last. Yes, they can transcend our example. In fact, isn't that our hope for our children? is they will rise above our example, rising past the things we did wrong before them in their eyes and building on the things that we did right. But that example will always be with them. And that example makes it easier to grow further or makes it harder. And that's what we have control over. Our personal example will either multiply the effect of our every instruction or cause it to evaporate the moment the words leave our mouths. And it's a fundamental of parenting that we must attend to our example and make sure that example matches our words. You know, in conclusion, godly parenting is without a doubt one of the most difficult and challenging tasks that any human being can undertake. None of this was meant to say that it's easy. At the same time, it is good. It is a good. It's so tempting in this world, and I've heard this. I don't know if I've heard it in the church or not, but I know I've heard it in the world. It's like, even the world recognizes, man, things are bad. I just don't know if I can have kids in a world like that today. Well... Especially us who look out in the world and realize the world is bad. It is even worse than they know. Do we want to have children in a world like this? And uh, there's one thing that was pointed out to me recently and something I read and I take courage from. And I I couldn't tell you the verses. I hope you'll look them up later. Uh, Don't look it up now. I'll tell you. it's, It's in Jeremiah 29. But don't look it up. Let's focus. End of the sermon. In Jeremiah 29, God is talking to them who are about to go into captivity. And if there's a time when you might think, woe is us and this is terrible. We're going into the lands of the heathen. You know, maybe that's not a time to have kids. He says the opposite. He says, you know, when you get there, have sons and daughters. He says build houses, build families, pray for the peace of the city in which you've been settled. Because if that city is at peace, you'll be at peace. Because in doing so, we are contributing to the kingdom of God. That's That's my editorial. He didn't say that part. God has not given us some sort of giant sign that we're not supposed to have children yet. Uh, and so that should be a goal of every family, uh, who's of childbearing age and older. You know what I'm talking about. I'm not saying, let me just say this, my wife and I don't have any future children plan. However, young families, yes, you should want to have children. That should be on your, on your plans. That should be on your radar screen. And no, I'm not just saying that so I'll have grandchildren. It's a, uh, you know. They've heard this kind of stuff uh, their whole lives from me. And I will say for those who choose to do so, and those who commit themselves to parenting them the way God would have us parent them, we have an opportunity to experience a joy that God will know. What is God doing? What's his whole effort? is to get us there, to have us by his side Living an eternal life in majesty and joy forever. That's his source of joy. It's Jesus Christ's source of joy. Christ didn't sacrifice himself so that he could somehow become super God. He says himself in John 17 that he was simply returning to the glory he had with the father before the world was. He was returning to the original state. He didn't come down to exceed that original state. He's going to return to it. Now, what was the joy set before him? As it says in Hebrews chapter 12, what did he find that was worth that sacrifice? What he found was all of us was that he and the father found it was worth it to go through everything they've gone through to to be able to look in eternity and the ages forever and not just see each other, but to see you there too and see me there too. And that is a source of joy for them that they long to experience. And those of us who have been given the opportunity to be parents have also that opportunity not just to enter into joy, but to know the joy of God that when we turn to our right or turn to our left, We see those that have been given to us as children whom we suffered over and prayed over, made our mistakes with, pleaded with God with, and to see them enjoying eternity and glory and eternal joy as well. It's a gift that is worth our every effort and to commit ourselves as parents.